Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another edition of Spy Talk. You know, Gene, I've long been curious about why Israel produces such superior espionage and counterterrorism dramas. So this week, I posed the question to Stuart Schoffman, an American expat writer and film professor in Jerusalem. It's about intimate connections, he said. Everybody knows somebody. Everybody knows somebody who's been involved in wars, either distant or recent. And uh, everybody really has security on their minds. I mean, I had this conversation the other day with my son. Um, and he said, well, it's simple. We're living in a security-obsessed country. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we really do best because we have to do best is intelligence. But first, this week, Attorney General Merrick Garland took the wraps off the administration's new strategy to deal with domestic terrorism. Garland cited attacks by extremists on the right and the left, the Mother Emanuel Church shootings in Charleston, the attack on a Republican baseball game, the death in Charlottesville of a woman protesting against white supremacy, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. Such attacks are not only unspeakable tragedies for the victims' loved ones, they are also a tragedy for our country, an attack on our core ideals as a society. We must not only bring our federal resources to bear, we must adopt a broader societal response to tackle the problem's deeper roots. This is the first document of its kind, and it has four pillars. One, understand and share terrorism information. Two, prevent recruitment and mobilization. Three, disrupt and deter terrorism. And four, confront the long-term contributors to domestic terrorism. I spoke about it with Gina Ligon, professor at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. She is also the director of INSIGHT, the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center, a consortium of more than 50 researchers studying the counterterrorism threat. Gina, how significant is the release of this strategy? So honestly, because it's the first strategy any presidential administration's ever had um, to to me, it's incredibly significant. The symbol of it, the resources it's going to release, the fact that, you know, the Tim McVeigh bomber happened 26 years ago, (laughs) and we're just now getting a strategy. To me, it's um, incredibly important and brave of this administration to do it. Why are we only getting it now? Since, as you've said, this has been a threat for decades. I think it's, it's um, we have very clear laws about foreign terrorist organizations that are incredibly um, black and white, right? So if someone is tweeting support, if someone is sending money to a foreign group, that is very clear that's not America. However, um, when you look at enemies here in the U.S., um, we have all of these civil rights and civil liberties that make it difficult. Like, is that a first protected Um, speech or is that are they actually tweeting on behalf of mobilizing violence and so I think a lot of it is that 
previous administrations, you know, from all the ones I would say from 95 to present, you know, have a real hard time protecting civil rights and civil liberties and giving a hard look at the domestic terrorist threat. Let's talk about what this new strategy will do. First of all, does it ex- uh, does it address extremism on both ends of the political spectrum? Yeah, I you know, here's the thing. I think uh, you've already seen people talking about that this is a you know, a, a government um, Biden administration, you know, witch hunt of the right. But if you look at what it was based on, it was based on that ODNI threat assessment back in um, March, and then the DHS and FBI one that came out in May, that really outlined five different types of extremist ideologies um, to include those who are anti-government on both ends, um, eco-terrorists, environmental rights groups, other domestic terrorist groups, But it also gave a hard look at the ones that are the most lethal, right? So that's the racially and ethnically motivated, that's the um, anti-government militia type groups, and those have been the ones that have caused the most threat. So yeah, it it does cover the most range, but it acknowledges the data that shows which ones are actually killing the most people. Social media has been an incredible factor in radicalization and recruitment. How does this strategy address that problem? Yeah, so here's where I was a little disappointed with it, to be candid. Um, You know, it didn't lean enough into legislation um, about what we're going to do with the extremist mobilizing mobilizing content. It sort of hedged if you looked at that pillar four and the pillar three about, you know, even if we don't get the right legislation, we're still going to do this, which is important. But it's like, why not just push for it? Why not? Why aren't we just coming out with very clear legislation the way we do about foreign terrorist organizations, right? So what would you have wanted this legislation, which it's not going to create, what would you have liked it to do? I think to criminalize anything that has a clear tie to mobilizing violence, right? Um, for it, for political reasons. And so, you know, we can, we're, we are Americans, we can hold extremist ideas, um, but we can't engage or inspire violence on behalf of those. And so I think, you know, one of the things that is promising is they are revamping the mobilization indicators to include domestic terrorist mobilization indicators. That's a really important step. We have to watch for that. Um, But to have very clear for both local, state, federal law enforcement to understand this kind of language is protected, this kind is not. Um, and to have really clear criminal investigation guidelines about what they can pursue is, is going to be um, something I'm watching for. Does the strategy address uh, cooperation between the social media platforms yeah. and law enforcement? Yeah, so the, the prevention pillar um, very much acknowledges the collaboration. The, so the new office in DHS, CP3, the um, Center for uh, Prevention Partners, Prevention Programs and Partnerships, Um, is very much focused on, we're going to give funds to local partners um, to include uh, the tech companies and tech sector uh, to be able to come up with more locally tailored um, strategies to to remove this content and to to actually address the disinformation piece that was in uh, pillar four, if you saw, um, which is also a, a huge part of the polarization that we're experiencing from social media. So what about money? What about personnel? Is that increased in the strategy? Yeah. So um, it it wasn't 
to me, super clear about who was getting how much. So I'll be watching to see the implementation plan of that. But if you saw, there was about 77 million increase in um, the attorney general's budgets, FBI, analysts. Um, that's important, right? From it, but it really shows that they're putting money toward the criminal investigation piece um, and prosecution of these cases. So we don't have a backlog. Um, the other piece that I saw was 100 million going to um, the three kind of lead agencies that are um, heading this NCTC, uh, DOJ, and DHS. And so, where's that going to go? What components are going to catch that money? Because that's going to signal what this strategy prioritizes. Is it prevention or is it um, uh, disruption? We've heard a lot about coordination and information sharing for years, and we actually saw it fail on January 6th. So is that grappled with in the strategy? Yeah, that's, um, I think that's the first pillar, right? Was uh, increased information. So acknowledgement that locals are going to lead investigations, right? But also um, increased information sharing um, structures across uh, the DOJ, so the JTTFs. I'll be interested, honestly, um, to understand if it's, are they going to have their own separate analyst um, in the um, intelligence analyst apparatus? Because right now, if you know how they're structured, um, intelligence analysts in FBI are region specific. So a, re a, a regional intelligence analyst has to know all, any and all threats in his or her region. And so it's like, how is that person ever going to develop appropriate domain expertise to understand what a domestic terrorist mobilization indicator is compared to a Salafi Jihadist mobilization indicator? So one of the things that some people had expected is that we might see a, a federal domestic terrorism law proposed. Mm -hmm. Not there. Nope. And, and no real mention of what the plan is to push for it. Um, uh, and your thoughts? You know, I think there's a lot of laws on the books right now that can be trained and amplified um, for, for locals to help to understand what they can and can prosecute. So for me, one of the key ones, and um, Mary McCord has written a great deal about this, is the law that we have on the books in all states about unlawful militia. And so each state has a law that if you are not in, um, condoned by a civilian authority, so by your governor, <laughs> then actually um, training or performing duties um, at, on, the, on the guise of being part of a militia or an extra law enforcement apparatus is actually illegal. So I think what this administration has done is they kind of have said, you know what, we're not going to push for domestic terrorism law. What I'd hope to see was what we're going to do is we're going to amplify um, and train on the existing law that is sufficient to be able to address this most significant threat. But you didn't see that either? Didn't see that either. Um, so I'm hoping that they'll drop some breadcrumbs, right? In the next, you know, from a training perspective for local law enforcement, um, you know, that we do have good existing laws on the books for militia. What we don't have is really good existing laws on the books for more diffuse networks or lone actors, which I think the, the, the strategy really outlined are some of the most pernicious threats. So I don't know how we're going to address that without that law. What some people would like to see is a focus on prevention to keep this from becoming a problem. It's a thorny issue. I think we both acknowledge, does this strategy get to it 
to any significant degree. I'd like to see some, some effort and money uh, poured into prevention for schools and education. I mean, the same way we've done for education about suicide prevention or school shootings or even human child trafficking, um, why can't we have some of those same programmatic efforts for recruitment into online extremist groups or at least recognizing when disinformation um, is being presented to you online? That should be part of any of our curriculum. Uh, wouldn't that be politically unpalatable to many Americans? It would. <laughs> and the problem is, is, you know, you can't focus on one ideology, right? And, and if you look at a lot of the polarization tactics that were used, um, they were fomenting discord on both sides. And so that's part of it is just recognizing any and all types of false information that are trying to foment more polarization in America. Uh, obviously, there are some foreign actors who are engaged in that. And I've done a couple of interviews over the last month or so where people have raised the possibility of not just uh, domestic groups interacting with foreign groups, but there, there may be a funding flow between foreign entities and domestic ones. Let me ask you again, does this strategy grapple with that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I was really... Um... That was one of the pieces, I'll be honest, I was more surprised about was that acknowledgement of the foreign ties. Um, we actually have a project in the Insight Consortium, uh, King's College of London, where they're looking at those ties between international groups and domestic groups here. What we're finding is the flows going both ways, um, which I think is really interesting. So we're not only importing um, resources in the United States from these groups, but we're also exporting them. Um, and especially with this racially and ethnically motivated white supremacist, um, white nationalist ideology is, is actually, we're, we're an exporter of that at this point. So um, yeah, I was interested to see that that was part of um, the strategy was to put more resources in Department of Treasury um, about those assets. Now, right now, um, you know, unless they're deemed a foreign terrorist organization, it's very difficult uh, to have some legislation to actually do anything about it. But I think the fact that they're at least gathering data is important. Are there some other gaps in the plan? So my bias, um, the, the, I'm really happy, and probably this is one of the, the most important policy pieces I've seen um, from any administration talk about law enforcement and military. Um, but what I felt like it stopped short on was that it really focused on vetting and screening. So yes, it's important. We're going to add a question to the security clearance, right? But it, what that does is it really fails to capture the life cycle of someone in a, a public safety position. And, and really, um, you know, if you look at a lot of the cases, a lot of them have radicalized while they're in or immediately following release. And so to not acknowledge that radical, you know, being a, a radical is not necessarily a, an individual characteristic, I think is kind of short-sighted. Um, so I'm hopeful that there will be more resources put into the whole life cycle of anyone in a public safety position. So this focuses on military and police, but what about the Department of Homeland Security, um, right? The largest law enforcement organization in the country. Um, what are we doing to be able to make sure CBP isn't, you know, agents who are working there aren't vulnerable to recruitment while they're in position? Like we, we can't have any extremists in any position where the public trust is required to get your job done. In the end, what impact do you think this strategy is going to have? 
That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm hopeful um, that this strategy sends a signal that having a domestic terrorism policy is a requirement of an American presidential administration. I think every year, every, every administration should revisit it and see what, you know, what's changed based on intelligence reports. Um, but it should be an underpinning of how we think of ourselves in our national security apparatus. So I'm hopeful that this is going to become a norm and not just a, a you know, one-time administrative um, coup. Do you think it presents the risk that the U.S. will take its eye off the ball when it comes to international terrorism? You know, that's where you have to look at the resources, right? So when you look at the implementation plan that's going to come along with this strategy, when they talk about that 100 million being plussed up to DOJ, DHS, are they, are they going to add capacity um, to both of those? Because, you know, my opinion, and I think, you know, Seamus Hughes just wrote a, a really elegant piece in Lawfare that stated that you cannot take your eye off of the Salafi jihadist threat that are, I mean, we are still charging people um, with ISIS-inspired uh, attacks that are getting thwarted in the United States. And so um, to look at those resources and make sure they're not taking away from the international threat, but instead plussing up the domestic threat is going to be incredibly important. Are there some specific markers or milestones you're going to be looking to the administration to hit over the next six months, year, two years? Yeah, so I think the first three pillars are, are measurable, right? <laughs> we can we can have some milestones. That fourth pillar, I'll be candid, um, is For very For those who lofty. don't know what, who oh. aren't familiar with the pillars, tell yeah, us Yeah, so the fourth pillar um, is, is really um, looking at the root causes of extremism in the U.S., right? So it's looking at historical racism, bigotry, disinformation. And yes, those are incredibly important issues, but how are we going to measure if any policy actually made a change in those? Um, and I, I just don't know how to how that's going to be implemented. Um, but the, for the first three, so um, in, increasing information sharing, increasing the information, one, one very important thing that I'm watching as a terrorism researcher is resources around um, actually getting a census of what the domestic terrorism attacks are and who's under investigation. If you look at that threat assessment that came out in May from DHS and DOJ, they still don't have good numbers, uh, you know, 26 years after McVeigh of how many domestic terrorism cases they have. And so to me, I, it's just, I, how do you resource against not having that, that, that data? So I think um, the most important metric we as American public can kind of demand or expect from this policy is to have some, some better data that's publicly available that we can see how many extremist cases are under investigation in the US, how many um, individuals have been discharged from public safety positions based on extremist beliefs. And to have those two pieces um, transparent and open to the public is gonna be a, a huge milestone for us. That was Gina Ligon, director of the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Coming up, Jeff asks why the Israelis produce such great spy thrillers.
Who can forget Claire Danes' portrayal of Carrie Matheson in Homeland, the hugely successful counterterrorism drama that ran for nine seasons on Showtime? It was right in front of my eyes. No, wait, wait! No. And I never saw it coming. Coming. Get everyone out of here! Everyone, get out of here! Our country is under attack. Unto this dawn. And I swore an oath. Homeland was riveting, if over the top, near the end. But how many people know that the show was an adaptation of an Israeli TV series called Prisoners of War? In fact, Israeli filmmakers have developed some of the most compelling espionage and counterterrorism dramas in recent years, from Fauda which explored the violent struggle between Israeli security forces and Palestinian militants, to Tehran about Israeli espionage operations inside Iran. What sets such shows apart is the empathy they show for all concerned, the wear and tear and personal sacrifices of the spies and counter spies on all sides. I wanted to explore how Israeli filmmakers attained such unmatched nuance and authenticity. So I called up Stuart Schaffman, a distinguished American expat writer and teacher of film in Jerusalem. Stuart Schaffman, welcome to Spy Talk. A couple of my uh, old time journalist friends were over last night and one of them, unbidden by me, brought up the latest Israeli spy drama that he had been watching called Mossad 101, now streaming on Netflix. Uh, whereupon ensued a discussion among the three of us about uh, the high quality of Israeli spy and counterterrorism dramas. Um, and I then mentioned the discussion that you and I had had the day before about uh, why these dramas might have such veracity, authenticity, and ring so much more true than a lot of the Hollywood productions. So tell us about that your theory of why the Israeli spy and counterterrorism dramas are so good? Well, thanks, Jeff. I, I, I should hasten to add that I've not seen Mossad 101 yet, but um, that's, uh, in point of fact, there are any number of them that I have not seen or that I started watching and that um, I dropped. And one of the reasons was actually because of their verisimilitude. In other words, I, uh, I live in an environment where this is the nightly news. So what I'm looking for is something a little more um, of, of an escape from, from the traumas that I experience um, at least as, uh, secondhand in my daily life. So I, I'm a big fan of, for example, a Scandinavian noir uh, television series. Nothing could be farther away from the uh, uh, from uh, from the steaming uh, Middle East. But the reason yeah, I think did you let me ask you, Stuart, do uh, a number of your friends share that view that we see enough of this in real life? We don't want to yeah. watch this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Last night I just had a conversation about a show that actually only began running um, about, I don't know, a year ago or so. Uh, it was filmed before the plague, and then they showed it uh, during uh, the year of uh, of Corona, which is a, a show that supposedly 
was uh, going to turn up streaming in America uh, on some platform rather called Valley of Tears, which is a, um, a, a really excellent show about the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War. That one I did watch with great interest. And I had uh, an ulterior motive for watching it because I was very interested at the time in a film that Susan Sontag made, a documentary about the uh, Yom Kippur War uh, that she shot while the war was still in progress. But in any case, Valley of Tears was very, very good, I thought. When I brought it up last night with a friend of mine who was over for dinner, who was a journalist, and I said, what did you think of that? He said, I didn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. He said, I was here during the 73 war. It was too close to home. It was too mm. real. Mm. And I decided not to watch it. Huh. Now, And that brings us huh. back to the subject of why these films have such verisimilitude, um, that so many Israelis have served in uh, the military that, and that special, special forces units. That is correct. In other words, we are we are living, um, we're living so close to the front. I mean, we are the front, and everyone in their family, with the exception of certain uh, uh, sectors of the population, such as the ultra orthodox or um, uh, Palestinian uh, Israelis, Israelis of uh, or also known as Arab Israelis, who serve much less in the, in, the, in the military. Everybody knows somebody. Everybody knows somebody who's been involved in wars, either distant or recent. And uh, everybody really has security on their minds. I mean, I had this conversation the other day with my son. Um, and he said, well, it's simple. We're living in a security-obsessed country. Mm -hmm. And... The thing that we really do best because we have to do best is intelligence. Mm -hmm. and, and he, he served said in this, intelligence course, unit. He and did he, indeed. He say he served he, in an intelligence unit intelligence. himself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's he interested served in, in naval film too. intelligence, and then he ended up becoming a filmmaker. Mm. And he hasn't yet made any films about. The military or intelligence, but I think that day will will uh, will will come. In fact, the, the, what what inspired him to become a filmmaker in the first place is something that maybe um, uh, uh, some of the folks out there have seen back in the day it was a film called Walk on Water. It came out in two thousand and four. It was at the time the most successful Israeli film. It's a feature film ever at, in the American box office. It was directed by a guy named Eitan Fox. And Eitan Fox had been in the military and um, it's about a Mossad hitman. And a Mossad hitman who's having kind of an emotional breakdown. So his superiors put him as it were out to pasture and hunting down a um, Nazi war criminal, which is what he didn't sign up to do. And he's very disappointed about this. But in any case, the film is very interesting and very successful. And uh, I had a hand in it because Eitan Fox was my student. And he asked me to run um, in, a, in a class on screenwriting and screenplay analysis that I taught at Tel Aviv University 30 years ago. And he asked me to run a, run a draft of the script through my own, uh, my own computer. 
uh, he was interested because the, the film deals with um, is, is a very much a film about the relationship between a Mossad guy and a young gay German who happens to be the grandson of a Nazi war criminal. And, and because Eitan is gay and I'm not, he wanted to run this through the brain of a straight guy just to strike the right balance between uh, uh, the, 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 the gay sensibility and a more straight sensibility in terms of what is disclosed to the uh, audience and at what point. In any case, I took my son to the premiere he was about 14 years old at the time. At the end of the evening, um, Eitan said, I'd like to call to the stage all those without whom, et cetera, et cetera. And I was one of them. And I go up to the stage. I came away from there thinking, there really is nothing like looking good in front of your kid. <laughs> and then as we were walking home from the Jerusalem Cinematheque, which is our great film venue, um, and uh, he turns to me, my son, 14, and he says, Abba, I want to do that. I want to make movies like that. This uh, is what I want to do. Uh, and shortly thereafter, he talked himself, talked his way into the arts high school in Jerusalem and never looked back. Hmm. Went to NYU film school. And uh, now he's actively involved in making videos uh, in Israel. The, the fact is that everybody here is so close to that. And we have a lot of other shows that reflect that. We have Fauda, in which, in, in which one of the creators of the show was someone who had actually been in such a unit. Hmm. I mean, that's a an counterterrorism excellent show. unit. Yeah. That, yeah one, that's, a, that's an excellent show. I'm thinking, I was thinking while you're talking, that one of the things that makes Fauda so compelling is the doubt, the second thoughts that so many of the Israeli security operatives have about the work they're doing. You know, they're not cast as these sort of heroes putting down this uh, very evil enemy. There's a, a, several levels of humanity uh, given to the Israeli counterterrorism officers, as well as the Palestinians uh, uh, against whom they're fighting. And that makes a very complex drama, makes it so real. We tend to have uh, black and white villains in our uh, oh, I think you're, quite, you're quite, I think you're quite right, quite right, quite right about that. And in fact, one could go back to the Spielberg movie Munich, um, in which you have the Israeli um, hit team that is uh, that is assigned to go and um, avenge the uh, the uh, the killings in the in the 1972. Uh, Munich Olympics, only they, they, they kill sometimes the wrong people. Mm -hmm. And it was, ba it was based on that. And it was full of second thoughts. You know, I mean, there was something, there was one point in the film where somebody is giving a whole song and dance based on a rabbinic tradition of how you must not gloat at the downfall of your enemies and they're arguing all these fine points of Jewish tradition, Jewish ethics, Jewish values. And Daniel Craig, who plays one of the hitmen, is getting bored with all of this and then says, you know what? I'm tired of all these discussions. What this basically all comes down to is one thing for me, and that is don't fuck with the Jews. And it was uh, just one of these eye opening lines. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah. there is at bottom, there is that sentiment. And you get that sentiment in a lot of these shows and the ones that transcend that. And Munich was the feature film that transcended that is, yeah, fine, we get it. But what's mm-hmm. the price? So that was, a, that was one of the rare exceptions, uh, an American film that captured all the nuances of uh, the assassination game, you might say. Uh, and uh, as we know from all the uh, what's been revealed about Israeli operations in Iran, uh, Israeli, Israeli intelligence leaders do not shrink from the fact that they are carrying out these murderous activities against their enemies in, in no, Iran. No, I, I think that's quite true. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a show here um, that that um, uh, that uh, started that was um, dropped first on Israeli television uh, in 2010. It was called Khatufim, which means the abducted ones. It was about prisoners of war in Lebanon, and 17 years later they get out, and how they are reintegrated into Israeli society, and so on. And it was popular at the time, or so it seemed, but it only ran for two seasons. And I watched a couple of episodes and I just had the feeling, I don't want to see this. Hmm. It's just something that feels too close. Well, Khatufim went on to be adapted into um, an American series. And that series was Homeland. Right. Which ran for many seasons. Right. And Gidon Raff, who is the creator of the show, and is an Israeli who lives in America, was instrumental in putting, uh, in putting Homeland together. And it was much more successful in the American uh, uh, evolution of the show. And I was glued to it. I loved, uh, I loved Homeland. And a lot of it, of course, had to do in various points in the, uh, beyond the Iranian uh, uh, angle. Uh, there were a lot of points in the show that had to do with Israel-Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the same Gidon Raf, uh, a few uh, just a few years ago, created a show that is thought of as an Israeli show, but it's really not. Um, it was done in English, and it showed on Netflix, and it was called The Spy. And it was about Ellie Cohen, who was the most celebrated... A spy in Israeli history who infiltrated the uppermost echelons of, uh, of, of uh, Syria um, uh, uh, leading up to the uh, Six-Day War. And he was um, instrumental in, in, in helping Israel gain an advantage in that, in that conflict, but he was also found out and executed. Yeah, um, and it was a beautifully played by Sasha Baron Cohen, known famously for Borat. It was a little it bit was. of an adjustment for me to, to switch from my, you know, impression of him as playing Borat to him playing a very cool uh, Israeli spy, but it was a magnificent drama. Well, Let me bring he, up he, another thing, uh, Stuart. Uh, someone suggested last night also that Israeli uh, films are so much uh, cheaper to produce in Israel and where the filmmakers and really make their uh, profit is when they sell them to uh, Western media. Sure, sure, that's so true. And I that's think the reason way- that, that that's the reason like Israel can produce so many, uh, you might say, esoteric 
counterterrorism and espionage dramas, and that Hollywood does not. Well, another thing that you have to bear in mind is that in the last, in recent years, um, there has been a, a tremendous globalization of, um, of uh, television content. And that you have shows that are produced in many countries where there is government backing for, uh, for filmmaking, where there are other sources of of, of, uh, of financing other than the typical ones in the United States. And then these shows end up, um, uh, you know, adapted or, or else uh, streamed or aired all over the world. By the way, Homeland also had a very successful uh, um, version of it in, um, uh, derived from the Israeli Khatufim in India and also in Russia. Mm. Um, but now what you have is if you just flip through, just take Netflix to pick the most uh, widespread of the streaming uh, uh, platforms, you will find Spanish shows that are enormously popular. Mm. And they are very much uh, in keeping with Spanish, uh, with, 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 with Spanish culture, but they have a, a global appeal like Money Heist. Um, then there's a, there's a telenovela that we've been following here lately, a Mexican show called Who Killed Sara, mm. which is totally addictive. It's a, it's a totally over-the-top Mexican-style telenovela. And I'm much more, uh, after, after a long day of, 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 of ruminating about what's going on in this country and then having it be re-ruminated before my very eyes on the eight o'clock news on, uh, on Israeli television, I am more than happy to dive deeply into the travails of a dysfunctional uh, Mexican family for however many seasons they want to put that on my screen. The spy dramas are all too real for people in Israel and, in, and among the Palestinians as well. Thanks so much, Stuart. So. Yeah, sure. It's just a pleasure talking about this with you. And thank you for that, Jeff. That gave me a title or two that I have to look up and watch now. Yeah, we like to uh, leaven the show with uh, visits to new movies and books with spy and counter-spy and counter-terrorism themes. So come back and check us out for more material like that. And there's also a lot of serious stuff, not just here on the podcast, but also on Substack. Subscribe to Spy Talk there. I'm Jean Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks a lot for joining us. Come back and see us next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.